Chapter 1 of Tarzan and the Golden Lion. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Josh Herring of Abingdon, Virginia. Tarzan and the Golden Lion by Edgar Rice Burroughs. Chapter 1 The Golden Lion. Sabor, the lioness, suckled her young, a single fuzzy ball, spotted like Sheeta, the leopard. She lay in the warm sunshine before the rocky cavern that was her lair, stretched out upon her side with half-closed eyes, yet Saber was alert. There had been three of these little fuzzy balls at first, two daughters and a son, and Sabor and Numa, their sire, had been proud of them, proud and happy. But kills had not been plentiful, and Sabor, undernourished, had been unable to produce sufficient milk to nourish properly three lusty cubs, and then a cold rain had come and the little ones had sickened. Only the strongest survived. The two daughters had died. Sabor had mourned, pacing to and fro beside the pitiful bits of bedraggled fur, whining and moaning. Now and again she would nose them with her muzzle, as though she would awaken them from the long sleep that knows no waking. At last, however, she abandoned her efforts, and now her whole savage heart was filled with concern for the little male cub that remained to her. That was why Sabor was more alert than usual. Numa, the lion, was away. Two nights before, he had made a kill and dragged it to their lair, and last night he had fared forth again, but he had not returned. Sabor was thinking, as she half-dozed, of Wapi, the plump antelope, that her splendid mate might this very minute be dragging through the tangled jungle to her. Or perhaps it would be Paco, the zebra, whose flesh was the best loved of her kind. Juicy, succulent Paco. Sabor's mouth watered. Ah, what was that? The shadow of a sound had come to those keen ears. She raised her head, cocking it first upon one side and then the other, as with up-pricked ears she sought to catch the faintest repetition of that which had disturbed her. Her nose sniffed the air. There was but the suggestion of a breeze, but what there was moved toward her from the direction of the sound she had heard, and which she still heard in a slightly increasing volume that told her that whatever was making it was approaching her. As it drew closer, the beast's nervousness increased and she rolled over on her belly, shutting off the milk supply from the cup, which vented its disapproval in miniature growls until a low, querulous whine from the lioness silenced him. Then he stood at her side, looking first at her, and then in the direction towards which she looked, cocking his little head first on one side, and then on the other. Evidently, there was a disturbing quality in the sound that Sabor heard, something that inspired a certain restlessness, if not actual apprehension, though she could not be sure as yet that it boded ill, it might be her great lord returning, but it did not sound like the movement of a lion, certainly not like a lion carrying a heavy kill. She glanced at her cub, breathing as she did so a plaintive whine. There was always the fear that some danger menaced him, this last of her little family. But she, save where the lioness, was there to defend him. Presently the breeze brought to her nostrils the scent spore of the thing that moved toward her through the jungle. Instantly, the troubled mother-face was metamorphosed into a bare-fanged, glittering-eyed mask of savage rage, for the scent that had come to her through the jungle was the hated man-scent. She rose to her feet, her head flattened, her sinuous tail twitching nervously. Through that strange medium by which animals communicate with one another, she cautioned her cub to lie down and remain where he was until she returned. Then she moved rapidly and silently to meet the intruder. The cub had heard what his mother heard and now he caught the smell of man, an unfamiliar smell that had never impinged upon his nostrils before, yet a smell that he knew at once for that of an enemy. A smell that brought a reaction as typical as that which marked the attitude of a grown lioness, bringing the hairs along his little spine erect and bearing his tiny fangs. 
As the adult moved quickly and stealthily into the underbrush, the small cub, ignoring her injunction, followed after her, his hindquarters wobbling from side to side, after the manner of the very young of his kind, the ridiculous gait comporting ill with the dignified bearing of his forequarters. But the lioness, intent upon that which lay before her, did not know that he followed her. There was dense jungle before the two for a hundred yards, but through it the lions had worn a tunnel-like path to their lair. And then there was a small clearing through which ran a well-worn jungle trail, out of the jungle at one end of the clearing and into the jungle again at the other. As Sabor reached the clearing, she saw the object of her fear and hatred well within it. What if the main thing were not hunting her or hers? What if he even dreamed not of their presence? These facts were as nothing to Sabor the lioness today. Ordinarily, she would have let him pass unmolested, so long as he did not come close enough to threaten the safety of her cub, or cubless, she would have slunk away at the first intimation of his approach. But today the lioness was nervous and fearful, fearful because of the single cub that remained to her. Her maternal instinct centered threefold, perhaps, upon this lone and triply loved survivor, and so she did not wait for the man to threaten the safety of her little one, but instead she moved to meet him and to stop him. From the soft mother she had become a terrifying creature of destruction, her brain obsessed by a single thought, to kill. She did not hesitate an instant at the edge of the clearing, nor did she give the slightest warning. The first intimation that the black warrior had that there was a lion within twenty miles of him was the terrifying apparition of this devil-faced cat charging across the clearing toward him with the speed of an arrow. The black was not searching for lions. Had he known there was one near, he would have given it a wide berth. He would have fled now had there been anywhere to flee. The nearest tree was farther from him than was the lioness. She could overhaul him before he could have covered a quarter of the distance. There was no hope, and there was only one thing to do. The beast was almost upon him, and behind her he saw a tiny cub. The man bore a heavy spear. He carried it far back with his right hand, and hurled it at the very instant that Sabor rose to seize him. The spear passed through the savage heart, and almost simultaneously the giant jaws closed upon the face and skull of the warrior. The momentum of the lioness carried the two heavily to the ground, dead except for a few spasmodic twitches of their muscles. The orphan cub stopped twenty feet away and surveyed the first great catastrophe of his life with questioning eyes. He wanted to approach his dam, but a natural fear of the man-scent held him away. Presently he commenced to whine in a tone that always brought his mother to him hurriedly, but this time she did not come. She did not even rise and look at him. He was puzzled. He could not understand it. He continued to cry, feeling all the while more sad and more lonely. Gradually he crept closer to his mother. He saw that the strange creature she had killed did not move, and after a while he felt less terror of it, so that at last he found the courage to come quite close to his mother and sniff at her. He still whined to her, but she did not answer. It dawned on him at last that there was something wrong, that this great, beautiful mother was not as she had been. A change had come over her, yet still he clung to her, crying much until at last he fell asleep, cuddled close to her dead body. It was thus that Tarzan found him, Tarzan and Jane his wife, and their son Korak the Killer, returning from the mysterious land of Paul Don, from which the two men had rescued Jane Clayton. At the sound of their approach, the cub opened his eyes, and rising, flattened his ears and snarled at them, backing close against his dead mother. At the sight of him, the ape-man smiled. Lucky little devil, he commented, taking in the story of the tragedy at a single glance. He approached the spitting cub, expecting it to turn and run away, but it did nothing of the sort. Instead, it snarled more ferociously, and struck at his extended hand as he stooped and reached for it. "'What a brave little fellow!' cried Jane. "'Poor little orphan!' "'He's going to make a great lion,' 
where he would have if his dam had lived, said Korak. Look at that back, as straight and strong as a spear. Too bad the little rascal has got to die. He doesn't have to die, returned Tarzan. There's not much chance for him. He'll need milk for a couple months more, and who's going to get it for him? I am, replied Tarzan. You're going to adopt him? Tarzan nodded. Korak and Jane laughed. That'll be fine. Lord Greystoke, foster mother to the son of Numa, laughed Jane. Tarzan smiled with them, but he did not cease his attentions toward the cub. Reaching out suddenly, he caught the little lion by the scruff of its neck, and then stroking it gently, he talked to it in a low, crooning tone. I do not know what he said, but perhaps the cub did, for presently it ceased its struggles, and no longer sought to scratch or bite the caressing hand. After that, he picked it up and held it against his breast. It did not seem afraid now, nor did it even bear its fangs against this close proximity to the erstwhile hated man-scent. "'How do you do it?' exclaimed Jane Clayton. Tarzan shrugged his broad shoulders. "'Your kind are not afraid of you. These are really my kind. Try to civilize me as you will, and perhaps that is why they are not afraid of me when I give them the signs of friendship. Even this little rascal seems to know it, doesn't he?' "'I can never understand it,' commented Korak. "'I think I am rather familiar with African animals.' yet I haven't the power over them or the understanding that you have. Why is it? There is but one Tarzan, said Lady Greystoke, smiling at her son teasingly, and yet her tone was not without a note of pride. Remember that I was born among beasts and raised by beasts, Tarzan reminded him. Perhaps, after all, my father was an ape. You know, Kayla always insisted that he was. John, how can you? exclaimed Jane. You know perfectly well who your father and mother were. Tarzan looked solemnly at his son and closed one eye. Your mother never can learn to appreciate the fine qualities of the anthropoids. One might almost think that she objected to the suggestion that she had mated with one of them. John Clayton, I shall never speak to you again if you don't stop saying such hideous things. I am ashamed of you. It is bad enough that you are an unregenerate wild man without trying to suggest that you may be an ape into the bargain. The long journey from Paul Dawn was almost completed. Inside the week, they should be again at the site of their former home. Whether anything now remained of the ruins the Germans had left was problematical. The barns and outhouses had all been burned, and the interior of the bungalow partially wrecked. Those of the Waziri, the faithful native retainers of the Greystokes, who had not been killed by Hauptmann Fritz Schneider's soldiers, had rallied to the beat of the war drum and gone to place themselves at the disposal of the English in whatever capacity they might be found useful to the great cause of humanity. This much Tarzan had known before he set out in search of Lady Jane, but how many of his warlike waziri had survived the war, and what further had befallen his vast estates he did not know. Wandering tribes of natives or raiding bands of Arab slavers might have completed the demolition inaugurated by the Hun, and it was likely, too, that the jungle had swept up and reclaimed its own, covering his clearings and burying amidst its riot of lush vendure every sign of man's brief trespass upon its world-old preserves. Following the adoption of the tiny Numa, Tarzan was compelled to an immediate consideration of the needs of his protege in planning his marches and his halts, for the cub must have sustenance, and that sustenance could be naught but milk. Lion's milk was out of the question, but fortunately they were now in a comparatively well-peopled country where villages were not infrequent, and where the great lord of the jungle was known, feared, and respected. And so it was that, upon the afternoon of the day he had found the young lion, Tarzan approached a village for the purpose of obtaining milk for the cub. At first the natives appeared sullen and indifferent, 
looking with contempt upon whites who traveled without a large safari, with contempt and without fear. With no safari, these strangers could carry no presents for them, nor anything wherewith to repay for the food they would doubtless desire. And with no ascari, they could not demand food, or rather they could not enforce an order, nor could they protect themselves, should it seem worthwhile to molest them. Sullen and indifferent the natives seemed, yet they were scarce unconcerned, their curiosity being aroused by the unusual apparel and ornamentation of these whites. They saw them almost as naked as themselves, and armed similarly except that one, the younger man, carried a rifle. All three wore the trappings of Paul Yuldan, primitive and barbaric, and entirely strange to the eyes of the simple blacks. "'Where is your chief?' asked Tarzan as he strode into the village amongst the women, the children, and the yapping dogs. A few dozen warriors rose from the shadows of the huts, where they had been lying and approached the newcomers. "'The chief sleeps,' replied one. Who are you to awaken him? What do you want? I wish to speak to your chief. Go and fetch him. The warrior looked at him in wide-eyed amaze, and then broke into a loud laugh. The chief must be brought to him, he cried, addressing his fellows, and then laughing loudly, he slapped his thigh and nudged those nearest him with his elbows. Tell him, continued the ape-man, that Tarzan would speak with him. Instantly the attitude of his auditors underwent a remarkable transformation. They fell back from him, and they ceased laughing their eyes very wide and round. He who had laughed loudest became suddenly solemn. "'Bring mats,' he cried, "'for Tarzan is people to sit upon, while I fetch Umanga the chief.' And off he ran as fast as he could, as though glad of an excuse to escape the presence of the mighty one he feared he had offended. It made no difference now that they had no safari, no ascari, nor any presence. The villagers were vying with one another to do them honor. Even before the chief came, many had already brought presents of food and ornaments. Presently Umanga appeared. He was an old man who had been a chief even before Tarzan of the Apes was born. His manner was patriarchal and dignified, and he greeted his guest as one great man might greet another. Yet he was undeniably pleased that the Lord of the Jungle had honored his village with a visit. When Tarzan explained his wishes and exhibited the lion cub, Umanga assured him that there would be milk aplenty so long as Tarzan honored them with his presence. Warm milk, fresh from the chief's own goats. As they palavered, the ape-man's keen eyes took in every detail of the village and its people, and presently they alighted upon a large bitch among the numerous curs that overran the huts in the street. Her udder was swollen with milk, and the sight of it suggested a plan to Tarzan. He jerked a thumb in the direction of the animal. I would buy her, he said to Umanga. She is yours, Boana, without payment, replied the chief. She whelped two days since, and last night her pups were all stolen from her nest, doubtless by a great snake. But if you will accept them, I will give you instead as many younger and fatter dogs as you wish, for I am sure that this one would prove poor eating. I do not wish to eat her, replied Tarzan. I will take her along with me to furnish milk for the cub. Have her brought to me. Some boys then caught the animal, and tying a thong about its neck, dragged it to the ape-man. Like the lion, the dog was at first afraid, for the scent of the tarmangani was not as the scent of the blacks, and it snarled and snapped at its new master. But at length he won the animal's confidence so that it lay quietly beside him while he stroked its head. To get the lion close to it was, however, another matter, for here both were terrified by the enemy scent of the other, the lion snarled and spitting, and the dog bare-fanged and growling. It required patience, infinite patience. But at last the thing was an accomplished fact, and the cur bitch suckled the son of Numa. Hunger was succeeded in overcoming the natural suspicion of the lion, while the firm yet kindly attitude of the ape-man had won the confidence of the canine, 
which had been accustomed through life to more of cuffs and kicks than kindness. That night, Tarzan had the dog tied in the hut he occupied, and twice before morning, he made her lie while the cub fed. The next day, they took leave of Umanga and his people, and with the dog still upon a leash trotting beside them, they set off once more toward home, the young lion cuddled in the hollow of one of Tarzan's arms, or carried in a sack slung across his shoulder. They named the lion Jadbal Ja, which in the language of the Pithrocanthropi of Paul Don means the golden lion because of his color. Every day he became more accustomed to them and to his foster mother, who finally came to accept him as flesh of her flesh, the bitch they called Za, meaning girl. The second day they removed her leash and she followed them willingly through the jungle, nor ever did she seek to leave them, nor was happy unless she was near one of the three. As the moment approached when the trail should break from the jungle onto the edge of the rolling plain where their home had been, the three were filled with suppressed excitement. Though none uttered a syllable of the hope and fear that was in the heart of each, what would they find? What could they find, other than the same tangled mass of vegetation that the ape-man had cleared away to build his home when he first came there with his bride? At last they stepped from the concealing vendure of the forest to look out across the plain where, in the distance, the outlines of the bungalow had once been clearly discernible, nestled amidst the trees and shrubs that had been retained or imported to beautify the grounds. Look! cried Lady Jane. It is there! It is still there! But what are those other things to the left, beyond it? asked Korak. There are the huts of natives, replied Tarzan. The fields are being cultivated! exclaimed the woman. And some of the outbuildings have been rebuilt, said Tarzan. It can mean but one thing. The Waziri have come back from the war. My faithful Waziri. They have restored what the Hun destroyed, and are watching over our home until we return. End of chapter.